Welcome everyone to CityWire's second episode of Advice Around the World. Uh, it's our podcast that's all about financial planning and the best stories we can find from the international planning community. Uh, we're Ian Horn and Amelia Garland from CityWire. Uh, I head up the UK audience development team, which means I speak to wealth managers and financial advisors across the UK, spend lots of time in laybys, spend loads of time on planes and all the rest. But it's a fun job and I enjoy it. Amelia, over to you. So almost the exact same as Ian, I head up the audience development for our US business. As the US is about 40 times larger than the UK, sorry Ian, I spend more time perhaps <laughs> <Uncalled> on, <for>. <laughs> more <laughs> times on planes, trains, and the endless Ubers trying to reach the very, very fragmented part of the RIA industry. Um, so we, we both spend most of our time on the road trying to meet with these independent registered investments advisors learning about their unique founding story and how they differ from their peers. Now, in this podcast, we are going to share some unique stories and insights from financial planners. We're here to talk with the pioneers and trailblazers in our industry to understand not only the people behind the stories, but also find fun and interesting facts about them along the way. All the way from Australia, we are joined today by David Andrew, the founder and CEO of Capital Partners Private Wealth Advisors, whose firm has not only won the FPA Professional Practice of the Year in 2017, but then again in 2019. And on top of this, it is the only firm in Australia to have received this award twice. What an achievement. David's firm is also renowned for its work on promoting the importance of cybersecurity after a data breach in 2018 at the firm. David Andrew of Capital Partners. Welcome to Advice Around the World. So, uh, David, yeah, mentioned... Amelia, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> good to have you. Sorry, I kind of jumped in again there. Um, our original script had, had a good day, mate, in there, but uh, Amelia bottled it. I'm just going to point that out. <laughs> Shit, I did. Ahoy, mate. Sorry. Did ahoy. Did people actually say ahoy, mate? Because I've never heard that one. <laughs> the American, yeah. we, we know nothing of Australia over here. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I've cut right across you, but uh, we've mentioned some pretty big things there, um, and we'll get back to those in a bit. But without mentioning any of the stuff about your, your company, um, can you, for a second, imagine you're at a dinner party, uh, and you've got to tell us something about you that we don't know, something interesting. What's your anecdote for us? I think I'd say to you that I was always destined to be an entrepreneur. Um, I lived in Sydney as a little boy between the ages of about um, three and seven. And the family stories go that I would go door to door selling, um, you know, pumpkin seeds or out of date newspapers or anything like that. And one day I had a raffle book of raffle tickets and I was selling, uh, selling raffle tickets. And a lady said to me, so darling, what, you know, what's the prize going to be? And, he, and I responded by saying, I've got no idea, lady. I've got to sell enough tickets. Then I'll tell you what the prize is going to be. <laughs> That is a great story. So now to get back to something that we mentioned earlier now, can you talk us through the data breach in 2018 at your firm? It's pretty much a business owner's worst nightmare. And how did it happen and how did it change the way you run your firm today? Yeah, Amelia, it was um, terrifying. And, and what I'd share with um, the audience is I, I don't think many firms have got any idea of how vulnerable they are. Um, we had um, a team member click on a phishing email. That phishing email um, phished her password. Um, they logged into our system, which was not two-factor authenticated at the time. Um, they did a, an auto-direct on her email and um, they got 17 emails um, redirected. 
there was no harm done to clients. But under our regulations, um, which is the Office of the Information Commissioner of Australia, um, we literally had to go through every single email and work out what personal data was in that email inbox and what the potential damage was. And we had to triage, triage the clients from low risk to high risk and we had to speak to every single client in, and, and, and write to them and say this was the information that was in the inbox. Now, there was all sorts of personal data in there. So the potential for um, identity theft was enormous. Um, the reality was that we were, we're 99% sure they only got 17 emails forwarded. Um, but the response that we had to give was enormous. Now, we were insured. So that's the first message is make sure you have good cyber insurance. Um, there is no question that the total cost of our breach would have been well over six figures, um, legal fees and the like. And um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was terrifying. And, and, and the way we looked at it was if it happens once, um, clients will feel sorry for you. If it happens twice, they'll really raise an eyebrow. And the third time it happens, you don't have a business. So we were very, very transparent. We were very honest about what had happened. We just followed every, we, would, we ticked every box and, you know, did everything that we were told to do. Um, how, how have we responded ultimately is that we've done a complete overhaul on our IT system. Um, we now have a group that monitors our system 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week and um, they know there's all these alarms and alerts that are set up externally and um, they know who's trying to log in you know we've locked down a whole bunch of like if you're trying to log into our system from outside of Australia that can't happen um, you can't you can't log into our system if you're not on a company owned device and a company a company controlled device so we're really really locked down the benefit of that though has been amazing during this COVID-19 pandemic where, where within the space of three or four days, we've had to send our team home. Well, we had an operating VPN. We had everything we needed um, to protect our client data. So I sleep pretty well now, um, but it was a terrifying experience. And if the one thing your listeners do as a result of hearing me tell that um, personal story um, is that they go back to the drawing board and really look closely at their cyber security because it's a really significant risk. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and actually, more and more we're seeing now, especially during the lockdown, you know, lots of kind of hackers are seeing this as an opportunity as much yeah. as anything. I mean, one thing I'd like to pick up on there, David, is, is how much of this is actually people management as much as it is having the right security in place? Because, you know, hackers, if they're going for a firm like yours, they're going to try a more sophisticated uh, you know, approach, right? So I imagine they'll send quite convincing emails um, and, and scams. So, so how do you train your team to recognise those and make sure that doesn't happen again? Yeah, look, we've got a we've got one location, so it really makes it a lot easier. We've got thirty five people in one location, so training people becomes a whole lot easier than if you've got a <clears throat> a um you know a, a geographically spread um, operation. Um, that happened really fast. Um, the person who got filched um, felt really bad, obviously. Um, I think there has been a huge commitment from our team just to really understand what a filching email is. Um, the people that, that support us um, have a, um, an email address that's just samples at, and anything that we think is suspicious, we just forward to samples at, um, which, which helps them keep um, 
re retraining carbon black, which is what sits in the background trying to protect our system. Um, yeah, I think the team have been fantastic, um, and, but it is a human problem. You're right. Even with all of the sophistication and expense that we've gone to, we can still, we are still a target. Um, and you've just got to be much better at identifying those targets. And you've got to have really good systems in place of transferring clients' money because all wealth management firms, of course, are targets um, because we have the money. Um, so transferring money to a client's account cannot happen without a phone call and a conversation with the client confirming it. Now, I know all, all wealth management firms these days would have that protocol in place, but it's just a series of simple things that you've got to be right on top of. And you talked a bit about now just how you've taken care of your, your people at the firm when it comes to cybersecurity. You know, what are other ways you've done so? And, and I'd love to get into how you won the FPA Professional Practice of the Year twice. It's, it's quite an achievement. And uh, what do you attribute that to? Um, we are a very, um, we're an ambitious firm, but we're very principle driven. Um, oh, sorry, principle driven. I would say principled. Um, we're, we're very clear on what we stand for and, um, you know, doing the right thing by the client, um, you know, really, really having an evidence base for everything we do. We're not a sales organization. We're an advisory organization. Um, we spend an enormous amount of time building out the capabilities of our advisors. So, um, you know, we have in-house programs where we, where we mentor, we, we teach, we, you know, we have, a, we have a capital partner's way of doing most things. Um, the, our, our management philosophy or our leadership philosophy is what we call loose tight. Um, so we are very, very tight around anything that has to do with brand integrity um, putting the client first, doing the right thing, um, being reasonable, um, but also then the loose part is letting people, letting people try things, letting people experiment, letting people do what they want to do. Um, the tight bit, I think, is can be misinterpreted. Um, in 2018, I, I wrote a book um, called Wealth with Purpose, and that basically documents end to end what we believe in as far as comprehensive wealth management is concerned. You know, understanding the client's purpose, making sure there's a really clear strategy and a plan in place, making sure there's an evidence base to the investment portfolio, and then ensuring that all the legacy issues are tied up. You know, um, you know the, the the life insurances, the the estate plan, the the trust nominations, all the things that need to be done to make sure that someone can really go to bed at night and say, you know what, these, are, these guys have got my back. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that makes it very easy for our advisors to be good at what they do because they don't have to overthink the advice process. The advice process is clearly defined. We know what we stand for. We know what we deliver. David, is wealth with purpose essentially what we'd call here lifestyle financial planning or is it different in any kind of way? I don't know about lifestyle financial planning, Ian. Certainly um, values-based, goals-based, purpose-driven financial planning. You know, we, we, we talk in terms of all the money in the bank won't lead to a rich, happy life. But, but wealth with purpose can. You know, if you're really clear on what your money's for and why, then that can add enormous richness and, and, um, and enjoyment to your life. So we're, we're not advisors that sell performance and sell, you know, we can do this better than the next guy and we're going to make you the most money. 
we're, we're talking about we're going to make sure you have the best plan and that you live the best possible life. Mm-hmm. I think I think purpose obviously is really subjective, isn't it? It's different to whoever you're, you're speaking to. But but what misconception do you think clients most commonly hold about money and and, and the purpose of it? Um, <laughs> look, this probably doesn't answer your question directly, but I think most people spend less time on their money than they spend on their summer holiday. Like they, they put far more effort into their summer holiday. Mm-hmm. So when they come to us and we give them a framework and, and we have the conversation with them around their values and, and what, what it is they want to achieve and how do they think about, you know, the difficult son or daughter or, or the challenge with the parents who are going to need nursing home care or... I, I think it's just an enormous relief. Yeah, and I, I guess like, is this is this a kind of practice that's that's commonly held across Australia? Do advisors typically subscribe to this wealth of purpose thing, or you know, or do people have more of a kind of sales led approach? Oh, Australia is changing very quickly in that regard. Um, the 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 recent changes, the code of conduct that's been um, that's effective this year. Um, this, the salespeople are leaving the industry in their droves um you 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 can't survive without appropriate tertiary um university level qualifications you can't survive um in a sales model it's it's just very very difficult you have to be able to demonstrate that you've acted in the best interest of the client not in the best interest of your your principal um your your um you know employer or or, you know, so so you you that is a personal responsibility uh, borne by the advisor. Does this follow on from the uh, the kind of royal commission into financial services and banking? Is that essentially what's caused this? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so the standards have been codified. Now, look for us. Um, look, there's an element of um, inconvenience. Um, we're ticked off that we have to sit an ethics exam, but everyone so far passes it. I was terrified I was going to fail that, by the way. Um, not, not because I'm not ethical, just because I'm, it's a long time since I've had to do exams. Um, so that's, that for a firm like ours, it's more of an inconvenience. We've got to reset a whole lot of rules and regulations, but there are a lot of people who are going out of business and it's, it's, I feel for them, it's tough. But when you look at the core of the code of conduct, it says you must act in the best interest of your clients. You must not have conflicts of interest other than the fact that you need to be paid for your services. So, so that's the ancient law of fiduciary, um, you know, English, English chancery court going back, I don't know how long, but a long way. Um, you know, you must disclose, just, you, must, you must have a fee agreement with your client that they understand um, that, is, that is agreed in advance. There can't be any surprises. Now, our, a lot of advisors are really anxious about this and say, oh my God, that changes the game. For any, any clear-headed community member looking in on financial planning and wealth management, they're just saying, hey, hang on a minute, that's common sense. Mm-hmm. Of course, you should be acting in the best interest of your client. Of course, you should be disclosing all of your fees. Of course, you should be, you know, acting on the client's behalf and not taking commissions from from a product provider. It's common sense, and and yet, of course, it's um, 
you know that's it's causing a lot of pain and a lot of a lot of concern for people and and I, i'm reminded amelia of the dol rule that's basically what the dol rule said yep and um there were a whole bunch of people that weren't happy about that right yeah and some people which is sad to say need that reminder it's um it's natural for us to do that but some people need to be reminded to always act in the best interest of your clients um so it's very similar to what happened here and with um kind of with those changes you've discussed david do you think the australian financial planning community is setting this this example or the you know the golden standard of financial advice around the world and and what are some of the kind of the big issues you've come across? Um, no, I don't think we're setting the standard. I, I think the standards in the United Kingdom and I think the standards for um, RIAs in the United mm. States are, are viable client best interest standards. I, 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 you know, I think we're sort of on a bit of a, a, a even footing there. I think ours are much tougher. As a, as a tougher to comply with. Um, it's a very, very challenging, probably poorly constructed set of public policy um, um, rules and documents. Um, it, it, so it is very, very challenging. But at its core, it's the right thing. And at its core, it will lead to people getting better advice. One of, one of the challenges, of course, is that financial advice being provided by university qualified advisors um, with a very high degree of compliance obligation, with a high degree of being able to demonstrate um, that, that the advice is in the client's best interest becomes expensive. So one of the challenges that we will face in this country is the disintermediation of middle Australia, um, and I'm sure that's happening um, in other other places. Mm-hmm. So people who people who arguably need the advice the most um, can ill afford to receive it. So perhaps that's the place for robo's. Um, but robo's mm-hmm. at the moment are effectively, at least in my world, my definition is um, they're they're online asset allocation and um, investment fulfillment machines, um, they're not providing comprehensive wealth management. And um, that's the bit that I think the regulators need to get their heads around is there's a lot of people in this world that need financial advice and they just can't afford to get it. I I think with Robo too, I mean, we have Robo advice firms here, um, but especially right during this crisis and a lockdown, People want to speak to a person when you know the the markets go into turmoil. So the robo advice firms have you know taken a hit during this time. And I always go back to that. I mean, even as I'm tw- I'm 27, and there's a lot of different platforms that um you know I can use to invest. And it's you want there's there's a lack of those opportunities for some people who can't afford it, as you mentioned. But it's tough because I still think I would want a person when you know the markets markets go down. I want to be able to know what's happening and have someone you know affirm my concerns. Um, so, robo I think right now especially is a very interesting topic. And and Ian, I, I, do you guys have that too over in the UK? Yeah, we do, um, and it's worked in some places and, and not in others. Um, the client acquisition costs can be quite high relative to the the money people make from having the client and. But I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not as young as 27, unfortunately. But um, you know, the first first time people want to speak to uh, an advisor might often be when they 
you know, get get a mortgage, buy a house. And yeah. It's, you know, that, that's the first time you'll probably think about it. So to do that without a person present is unlikely and, and, and not really desirable. So, so yeah, it's kind of the same here. That's interesting, yeah. Ian, when you say that, because you look at the robo, if, if, if I'm correct in that it's an asset allocation and fulfillment service, mm-hmm. um, I wonder, Amelia, if we're seeing hot money. You know how there's always sort of hot money follows a trend and then it, then it runs out again. And that's one of the things that I found fascinating with Vanguard. Um, they're advised, um, uh, and it was similar for dimensional fund advisors too, as I recall, during the um, global financial crisis, where, where the advised money was not hot money. Um, it was sticky. And, and it just makes you think that the role of the advisor, you know, and that conversation piece that you were speaking about, Amelia, you know, it's possible for markets to be sort of going haywire mm-hmm. and yet people are willing to stick it out because they're actually confident that they're still on track to achieve their goals. So that's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? That the financial plan has such a powerful anchoring quality in the client's psyche that they say, no, 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 I've got a plan. I'm going to stick with this. And through history, you know, you, 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 unless, unless the advisors genuinely provided awful investments, um, if, if, if the investments have been good quality, long-term, stable investments, not just sort of structured products and rubbish, but if, it, if it's good quality stuff, by and large, history has proven that those people who can anchor to a robust plan have come out really well. Yeah, I think you're right about long-termism. And, and actually, uh, seeing, seeing as we've you know, got an Australian on the phone and we're talking about sticky money and long-term investing, um, is the trend towards ESG prevalent in your part of the world as well? Because we kind of forget because of the lockdown, but in January, Australia was all over the news for, for other bad reasons. So has that made people think more about environmental impact as well? Yeah, um, the bushfires were terrible. And um, we, we really appreciated the support that we got from the UK and the US. Um, mm-hmm. Some really prominent people, really prominent people called out the need to support people in need. And, and I just want to say it was really appreciated. Um, we, as a continent, are one of the most ancient continents. Um, it's very dry and it's getting drier. So climate change for us is a big deal. Um, <laughs> Our client base tends to be um, in the sort of 40 plus age group. Um, so, so historically, last 20 years, ESG has not been a big deal. But just in the last 12 or 18 months, we've done a lot of work in this space because people have said, well, if you can't provide that, then I can't work with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where we've landed that at the moment, Ian, is that we are not going to make a judgment. I have personally made some choices about um, um, SRI, particularly mm-hmm. in my glo- the global allocation of my portfolio, not so much the Australian. Um, and I'm very, you know, you know I, I won't state my personal views, but, but child labour. Um, munitions and and some of those social issues are just as important to investors as as um, climate change. So to give to not to not be in a position to give clients 
the opportunity to align their money and their values just misses the point for me. Um, I, I just think to have a horse in the race where you say, well, you know, we don't think SRI investments deliver a, a, as good a, an investment return. This is, this is deeply held values-based um, decision-making on the client's behalf. And there are absolutely clients who will forego, um, you know, a couple of basis points here and there to align their portfolio with their values. So, so why wouldn't you? Yeah, it's interesting. And again, when it's, uh, again, ESG is a broad term, but a number of people are reporting to us that their portfolios have outperformed uh, with these overlays on. Yeah, uh, It's the same in America as well, Amelia. Yeah, well, because some of the companies, especially now, right, those quality companies um, that have those screening, those SRI screens or ESG screens, um, the the PM uses, those are actually performing better um, now, especially. So it's, I think there's like a myth that, or I think now we're even debunking it, that SRI or ESG doesn't perform well um, now more so than ever it is. Um, so advisors yeah. are learning, they have to adapt. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, 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 your it's, point, it's, there are so many acronyms, aren't there, in the space. So I suppose if you, certain ethical overlays probably do lead to a few basis point reductions, but, but ESG yeah, certainly tend, on the whole seems I to be pretty well. Those. Yeah, I tend to use those terms interchangeably, and and they I shouldn't, but I tend to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, at the, but at the moment, at the moment, anything with an environmental screen is going to be doing beautifully because it's mm -hmm. got no exposure to oil, because yeah. um, oil prices have fallen out of bed. You know, any any portfolio that doesn't hold oil prices is going to be brilliant. Any you know, one of the biggest one of the biggest um, emitters of um, carbon is uh, our airlines. So any portfolio that doesn't hold airlines right now is going to be doing incredibly well. Now, I wouldn't claim any genius around that if I was the PM, because that can turn on a dime. You know, as we come out of this, as we come out of this um, pandemic, um, it will take time, of, obviously, for things to recover. But the oil price will recover and um, airlines will get up and going again and, and, and confidence will return. And those SRI portfolios will underperform. I, I think as advisors, we've, uh, as advisors, I think um, I've seen this over the years, people are very, very willing to very quickly claim credit for something that they aren't responsible for. <laughs> um, the, markets, the markets are a very powerful information processing machine and I'm very, very careful not to claim credit that's not mine. Um, the market is the market, and um, to a large degree, our job is to make sure our clients don't mess it up. And um, you know, if you believe in the long-term value creation that capitalism has to offer, then not messing it up is going to give you a pretty good outcome. Yeah, and David, you've, you've given us some really good insights to Australia and some of the trends going on. But I, I quickly, before we finish, want to go back to you because I realise you told us that story at the beginning. And we never actually found out what you did give away as the raffle prize in the end. <laughs> Ian, it was in about 1968. <laughs> I've, got, I've got no idea. <laughs> oh, well, fair enough. I mean, but, but going back to that, though, I suppose you're talking to a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Did you ever run any other businesses prior to financial planning or advice? Um, did you have any other experiences of doing things like that? No, I went to university and I went and I lived in Hong Kong for a while. And, um, but the, the drive 
to be my own boss and establishing this um, business was so overwhelming. So I, I, I was talking with friends around this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this for probably five or six years before I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how that works, but some people are almost hard-coded to be entrepreneurial and others are not. And I don't think it's right. You know, we've got a whole bunch of people in our business who are, frankly, much better professionals than I am, as in technically capable and, um, and able to deliver the solutions that their clients need. You know, I'm a kind of old school, but I do love the, um, the intellectual um, challenge of building an enduring business. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anything that you... Actually, Emily, you've got a question there. Oh, no, I was, I was going to ask um, the, last, the last one of the advice for the international thing. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a stop last question for you, David. No, I'm just going to ask just one thing quickly before we do that. Yeah. Um, you know, when you, you've seen how the advice businesses and planning businesses work. So when you started out, what was it that you wanted to do differently? Uh, that's easy. Um, 1999, so we were 20, 20, just gone 20 years old. Um, I was absolutely hell-bent on being not doing commissions um, like investments. Um, we were fee-based from day one and um, we did financial plans from day one. And um, so I guess we, we weren't pioneers in that respect. There were other fee-only financial planning firms in Australia at the time, but gee, there weren't many. Mm. And, um, and I think consumers actually got that. I, I think we grew early on and got lots of referrals early on because word gets around that, my God, these, these people actually do the right thing. They have lots of good conversations with you and then they actually put things in writing and you get the opportunity to think about it, but there's no pressure. You're not being sold something. Um, yeah, that, that was my passion. That, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to create something different. And looking back on it now, it sounds crazy because you know, lots of financial advisors are doing that. But at the time, in the town that I lived in, it was kind of different. Mm-hmm. Well, you've, you've definitely been leading the way and um, your firm is, is a testament to that. And for the last question now, um, drum roll, um, you have our I'm audience gonna... listening internationally. This is your parting shot. No, you Ian? see, David, we, we do this question in two halves or I ask the second half. But I have totally hogged the microphone today. So, Amelia, you finish, you finish the question. Thanks, Ian. I was hoping you say that. <laughs> what advice do you have for the international planning community listening in today? Get out of bed every day and go to work with the firm objective of making long-term decisions, doing the right thing by people, your, your clients, your team members, um, invest in them, you don't have to be perfect. Just, just be, be prepared to say you're sorry. Be prepared to admit that you might not have quite got things right and that you'll, you'll make it right. Um, I think, I think the, the power of taking a long-term view and being willing to invest long-term is probably the thing that's helped me the most. Um, you know, our business is full of people who have worked there 10 plus years and, and um, it's, it's their home away from home. Um, now, you know, that, that doesn't happen if the owners of the business are trying to take cheap shots and 
cut corners. So, yeah, just just do the right thing by people. Take a long-term view. Um, really invest in the future of what it is you're trying to create. Brilliant. Well, on that note, David, thank you so much again for joining us on our yeah, second episode of Citywire Advice Around the World. We are Amelia Garland and Ian Horn, and we are here to find the best stories behind the international planning community.